if you're in the habit of, of reading along with me, will be in the book of Hebrews in chapter 1. If you bring your own Bible, perhaps your Bible just falls open uh, to this page now and nothing would bring me more delight. You put a good crease in there, so maybe it'll do it next week. But this is Hebrews in chapter 1. And before we read, would you please pray with me? Our great God, this is your word. Would you cause us now to really listen? Would you produce faith in us as we listen? And would you overcome all of our sin of unbelief? Help us to believe these things, to come to understand these things, and to praise your name because you're praiseworthy. We ask your help by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Hebrews in chapter 1. I want to read here again these first three verses, so we'll begin in verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is God's word. Now, before we move on into the rest of chapter one, which we will finally do next week and start to sink our teeth into the meat of Hebrews, we still have one line in this opening section that I think we need to pause and give real attention to. So the line that we'll be focusing on is in the end of verse 3, which is this. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So today, simply this morning, we're exploring what does that mean? What does he mean that he does these things? And it will help us understand what the author means if we look at who the author is talking to here. Uh, so you remember, if you've been with us these past few weeks, that the book of Hebrews was circulated in the early churches as a letter. Uh, the author is not known to us. We don't know exactly who wrote the book of Hebrews, but whoever he was, he likely wrote the book of Hebrews originally as a sermon. We're now listening to a sermon. He technically calls it at the end an exhortation, a word of exhortation. So who then is the author speaking to? Who's his audience? Who's sitting in the pews when he says these things? The title of the book says, To the Hebrews. 
Um, but we know the title wasn't written by the author. Uh, titles of the New Testament books were added in later, just like uh, chapter numbers and verses. You know, the, the authors weren't saying chapter one and writing a little bit and putting a verse number. Those things were added in later to help us reference parts of these books and to know what book we're talking about. So the author didn't title this the letter to the Hebrews, but it's been given this title over the centuries uh, for a number of reasons. There are hints and clues. You don't have to be a fancy scholar to do these things, but if you're just a careful reader of the book about uh, suggestions of who the audience is and that they were part of the Hebrew people. So we see it even in the first chapter. There are hints in that direction. Just in the very first verse, the author starts, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers. That's a reference to the patriarchs of the Old Testament, uh, the, the leaders of the Hebrew people. And he's assuming that his listeners are kind of in line with that. And, and then in the rest of chapter 1, you can look, if you're reading along with me in your Bible, if you scan down and look at later in the chapter, uh, some uh, translations indent various sections. There's kind of jagged, usually smooth, the edges of the text. But are there in your translation some jagged edges as you go? Sometimes the translators are doing that to highlight certain sections where the author is quoting directly from the Old Testament. And they set that section apart with jagged text. Uh, and so this happens a lot in the entire book of Hebrews, but it happens uh, at, at least a dozen times just in chapter 1. So the author is quoting these verses from the, from the Old Testament without any sort of explanation, without any sort of citation, like as Isaiah says in his book, he just quotes the section and, and he does it fast, like he's throwing darts at a board and he just kind of moves on because he expects that his listeners know what he's talking about. He expects that this is a very, very familiar part of their culture, of their heritage, of their faith. That his listeners knew the Old Testament scriptures very, very well. He just assumes that. So from these things, uh, then the audience is likely of Hebrew descent and background. They now, it seems, have become followers of Jesus. That's the reason why they want to hear a sermon about Jesus. And so his listeners are probably Jewish Christians. Jewish by heritage, Christian by faith. Now, why do we care about this? <laughs> Why is this not just mumbo-jumbo? The reason why this matters for us is because when we get to the section we're now looking at, when the author says that Christ made purification for sins, the original listeners are going to hear that with Jewish Christian ears. They're going to hear that through an Old Testament lens. And so if we're going to understand him rightly, we need to do some of the same. We need to go back then into the Old Testament, which we'll do now. So in the Torah, which is the teaching of the law, we talked about this in Sunday school, actually. This 
turned out nice and handy. Those first five books of the teachings of the law in the Old Testament, uh, there, there's a discussion of these things, especially in the book of Leviticus, which I know people never read or touch. I mean, uh, please read it. It's interesting, if nothing else. It's God's holy word, and, and, and it will become rich as you read it more and more. But at any rate, in, in Leviticus, God gave his people a, an elaborate system of purification laws in response to their uncleanness. And so there's extensive discussions there about these Old Testament ceremonial laws in, in, in relation to things like various diseases. Uh, there's a lot of discussion about uncleanness related to leprosy. And, and if you have mold or mildew in your house, what to do about that? If you've had some sort of contact with the dead, or, or even there's a various ask, aspects of childbirth are included under this. And so these Old Testament laws then said not just that you needed a doctor for these things, although it doesn't discourage that. It would be wise to have a doctor for these sorts of things. But you need a priest for these sorts of things. And so Leviticus then describes what the priest would do. And de depending on the circumstances, he'd do various things. But if, he, if the circumstance was dealt with, then the priest could pronounce that person or situation as clean, as purified. In other words, the mildew's gone. So these laws then are not just about sanitation. You know, a little pump of Purell rub it together, don't spread the cough kind of thing. Although it definitely did help uh, with sanitation issues in their time. These laws were about physical cases of uncleanness pointing to spiritual cases of uncleanness and their need for purification. So that's what Jesus is talking about when in Christ's day he's discussing with the religious leaders various things. And these religious leaders are the ones that are very, very good at the physical purification laws. In fact, they'd probably stick up their nose at you if you didn't follow them. Uh, but Jesus uh, gets up in their face, if I can say it that way, in Luke uh, chapter 11. And he says to them just very bluntly, you fools. Jesus says those things sometimes. You fools, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but the inside is dirty, full of greed and wickedness. And you know there he's not talking about cups and dishes, right? <laughs> you know, we, we, we don't have a greedy cup or, or a wicked dish. He's talking about the sin of their hearts, of our hearts that needs purification. And so the Old Testament system had, had systems that would purify physical uncleanness, but there was also a way to address the spiritual uncleanness, to deal with the sin in the hearts. And it's usually what the Old Testament calls atonement, that sin would be purified. And it often involved a, a priest and the death of an animal in some sort of sacrificial offering. It was usually messy, usually bloody, usually smoky, uh, these sacrifices. And the point of this was to see how serious sin is. 
to see that sin is a violation of the holiness of God. That unatoned sin would bring wrath and judgment of God upon the people. So they needed to be cleansed. So that is the context at which the author is now speaking to the, the, the Hebrew Jewish Christians here in the book of Hebrews. But, but one key thing here, while the author is comparing this situation to the Old Testament situation, he also points out that Jesus does purification in a slightly different way. And he's going to expand on this in later chapters, chapters 5 through 10, so we'll come across this again. But now, he's just giving us a quick foretaste and in that taste, this is going to be enough to carry us through. So from this sentence that we're focusing on today, I just want to draw out three things about the purification that comes from Jesus that is true and helpful for us that we need to hang on to. So here's the first of these three things about Christ's purification. First, the purification that comes from Christ is Singular. Purification that comes from Christ is singular. I mean that in a grammatical sense. If you don't like grammar and you internally groaned just now, this is short and easy, I promise. Um, so if you look at how he words it, the end of verse 3, he says, after making purification for sins. Notice there that the word sins is plural. It's got an S at the end. Sins are many, but the word purification, the purification that comes from Jesus, is singular. It's not Christ's purifications for sins. It's Christ's purification. So this, the way that the author will talk about this later in the book of Hebrews in chapter 7 is that Christ sat, was sacrificed once for all. In other words, the act of purification happened one time during his life on earth, during the event on the cross. And this means things for us. So we know that a Christian will still struggle with sins, plural, throughout the course of our life. Even when we're in Jesus, we will still struggle with that. We, you may even battle some of the same sins over and over and over again and get tired of confessing the same things to God. But we do want to confess our sin specifically, not just generally. We want to talk about specific things as far as we're able. The reason for this, when we confess specifically, is so that we'll grow in our relationship and closeness to Jesus, that we'll grow in our holiness and our following of him. So imagine a situation in which someone who's close to you gets really upset with you, and says something that's really hurtful. That's sin. And that person then later comes to you and says, I'm a sinner, please forgive me. 
How would you feel about that situation? Probably not great. You might wonder, did they get it? What they actually did? Like, do they understand the hurt that they caused? Do they know what they actually said? Do they really mean what they're saying? Now imagine that that person who said this to you comes and says, I said this particular thing to you, and I was wrong. That was more about my own lack of patience and love than anything. I don't want this to come between us. Please forgive me. Do you see how different it is than to confess specific sin? We confess then specific sin because we value our relationship with God. But, but, and hear me now, when we confess specific sin, it's not because God then decides in that moment whether he's going to forgive us or not. Nor is it because when we confess specific sin, then he gives us a new little dose of forgiveness, sort of like a booster shot in that moment. Forgiveness is singular for Jesus. It is already in effect. That's the reason why after we confess sin and there's the section of assurance at the end, I say, you are forgiven. It's not a new dose of forgiveness. You are, are already forgiven if you are a believer. His purification is singular. So Christian, do not fear confession. Second, here's the second thing we can learn about Christ's purification. It's connected to the first. The purification that comes from Jesus is finished. The purification that comes from Jesus is finished. Here it is again in verse 3. After making purification for sins, he sat down. It's an interesting little tidbit. And that's very different than the Old Testament system. The priest who worked in the temple or the tabernacle uh, where they would make purification for sins, there weren't any chairs in the tabernacle or the temple. They didn't have nice places for anyone to sit. Uh, and, and, and part of that is because their work just never ended. There wasn't a chance to sit down. It's Ongoing, The need for purification was never quite complete. And so it was like the people were stuck in a revolving door that just went on and on and round and round. But Jesus is different. Jesus is not a revolving door, but an open door. And we can enter into God's presence through him because his purification for sin is singular and finished. When Jesus breathes his final breaths on the cross, one of those last words, in fact, just one word was, it is finished. Meaning, the debt of wrath, the wrath of God toward all who believe is now paid in full. The purification for sin is complete in that moment. So he sat down. And he, Jesus doesn't sit down at the end here because <laughs> it was a lot of work and I need a break. My knees are tired. That would be my reason. 
or because uh, he is waiting for purification part two or part three or part 10 or part 20. It's because his work of purification is done and he carries that finished work of purification to the right hand of God the Father, the majesty on high. Side note, this means that the idea of purgatory is completely out of the question. You know, some groups still teach some system of purgatory, but nothing in the Bible ever teaches that. Purgatory is the idea that a believer, a Christian, after death still needs to be purged to be before God. That's what purgatory is. It comes from the word purge. They still need some sort of purification from sin. And we know, of course, that a Christian still sins up to his very last days. And after death, a Christian is glorified in the sense that he has no more desire for sin. But the Christian who trusts in Jesus is now in this moment purified in full through the finished work of Jesus. So we should never say that Jesus' work in us is not enough. Though it sometimes feels like it isn't enough. We know that our own hearts will accuse us. We know that the world will look at us and see our sin and accuse us. And Satan himself will stand before God and say, look at him, look at her, and accuse us. But Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father, defending us. That's what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 8. Because when he sat down at the right hand of the Father, he's not just taking a nap there. He's carrying out the implications then of his purification. Romans 8, verse 31. Paul says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Did you hear it there? Jesus is now at the right hand of God the Father, interceding. He steps in against all those accusations and says, that is my child. That's my son or daughter that I have bought with my sacrificial blood. And my work of purification in this person is finished and complete. So Christian, 
Do not fear the judgment of God. We know that while Jesus is growing us now in holiness by his spirit, in another sense, his work of purification in you is complete. So that's the second one. His work of purification is finished. Third, the work of purification from Christ is accomplished. Christ's work of purification is accomplished. I get this from, again, here's our section in verse 3. After making purification for sins. The purification for sins was made, it was done, it was accomplished by Jesus. In other words, Jesus has not come to make purification for sin possible. He has come to make purification for sin actual. To actually purify from sin. It's a subtle difference there, but it's very important for us to understand. A theologian um, from the early 20th century, Scottish. Love Scottish people. I won't say this in a Scottish accent. You would all groan. Uh, John Murray uh, wrote this book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. You know I love small books, but uh, don't be deceived by this one. It packs a punch. Uh, It'll really get you. But uh, this is what he says here. He writes, What does redemption mean? It does not mean redeemability, that we're placed in a redeemable position. It means that Christ purchased and procured redemption. Christ did not come to make God reconcilable. He reconciled us to God by his blood. The very nature of Christ's mission and accomplishment is involved in this question. Did Christ come to make the salvation of all men possible? To remove obstacles that stood in the way of salvation and merely make provision for salvation? Or did Jesus come to save his people? Here's another way we could think about the distinction between actual and possible redemption. So let's say, humor me here, go with me on this, that Jesus, the purification that Jesus made is like a cake. And if we eat the cake, it is the antidote that will rescue us from all sin. Okay? So so Jesus does all this work on the cake. He goes to the store, he gets the ingredients, he he, he puts them together, mixes them up, uh, sifts the flour if it's a fancy cake, uh, he puts it in a pan, preheats the oven, waits forever because the oven takes a really long time to warm up, uh, and he sticks it in, he sets the timer, he watches it till it turns golden brown. 
He's checking the cake. He, he pulls the cake out. He frosts it or does however, whatever he does with this cake. And he cuts a little bite out for it. He puts that bite of cake on a fork. He puts the fork in our hand, guides the fork right to our mouth. And he says, eat it. This cake will save you. And then he stops. And then he waits. If that is the case, if Christ made purification for sin possible, but not actual, it is not enough. Even if he does all of it up until the very last moment, if that is the case, no one would ever eat the cake and no one would be saved. His work of salvation would not be accomplished because we know in our own nature we do not love God, we do not trust God, we do not desire the things of God, so we don't believe him. On our own, with that bite of cake right up next to our mouth, in our own hands, we would say, yuck. This cake stinks. You must have put too much baking soda in this cake. No thanks, I've got my own food. We would be suspicious of God and his motives, and we would have no faith in him. In order for us to be saved, Christ must accomplish a work in our hearts first. He must work in us to cause us to want it, to desire it, to cause us to believe, to put faith in us so that we would come to smell the sweetness of his cake and gobble it up and ask for more with delight and thankfulness. Even the first bite of cake even this act of faith is not our own act. That faith is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast, so that he would save us completely, that he would make purification, not just lead us up to it, lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. No, he would make purification, not just merely possible, but effectively accomplished fully in us. So because Jesus has made purification for sins, Christian, do not fear that you will fall short. He accomplishes it all. Now, as we wind down here, I do want to acknowledge that the fact that Christ has, has accomplished purification for sin completely in a finished way, this does not mean that Jesus saves everyone. That's called universalism. That is not what the Bible teaches. 
And so we plead for those that don't know Jesus, please come to Jesus. This cake will save you. What it does mean is that the ones whom Jesus saves by stirring faith, repentance, holiness in them, Jesus saves fully through his own work, through his singular, finished, accomplished work of purification in us. That's good news. That after making purifications for sin, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Would you pray with me? Lord, we praise you and thank you for your complete work in us. Would you conquer all our sin, purify all our sin, overcome even our own unbelief? And Lord, would you bring us securely into your presence by your love, by your power, and by your perfect, complete sacrifice? Thank you for being our God. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.